0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Ice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that exists today. It's been said once or twice, mainly on this podcast, that we're in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games that we can spend our hobby time and our hobby dollars on, and it can lead to a serious case of not knowing what to play next. And I guess that's the purpose of this podcast. It's to dig into the games that my guests and I enjoy playing, to talk about big industry events and to talk to the people who create these games. Now, if you can see the giant grin jackhammered into my face, you will know just how happy I am to record this episode. And if you're listening, you would have definitely seen the thumbnail and know what's coming. But my God, it is lovely to have another special guest on to talk about the history of gaming, particularly around some of the games that I absolutely adored playing in my 20s and really did shape the way that I grew up into the gamer that I am now. In the past, of course, we had Papa Rick on, Rick Priestley, to talk about the history of Warhammer 40,000 from Rogue Trader up to and the beginning and a little bit through uh, second edition for Warhammer 40,000. We also talked about Warmaster and a variety of other games. Now, this man that is our guest today was recommended by Rick as the man to continue the story. Because we have had so many requests from you, the listener, and now the viewer, uh, to continue to talk through some of the lore and the history of uh, some of Games Workshop's big games, because like it or not, and I know that some people don't, and some people do, Games Workshop is a big part of today's modern gaming industry. And in the 90s, they were the big show, and they probably still are. Joining us today is a man who has written some of my favorite bolt action supplements for Warlord Games. Of course, I'm talking about the Soviet Union book. I'm talking about Empires and Flames. He has written Blood Red Skies. He has co-written Strontium Dog, Judge Dread," Slain. But these are just a few of the things he's done recently. He's worked as part of a development team for writing lore and stories for video games. He's a successful law, uh, novelist for Black Library. And God, that doesn't even get into the thousands, it seems, of games he was a part of when he was a big name in the Games Workshop game studio. Of course, I am talking about the man with the most impressive facial hair in 2nd Ed and 3rd Ed, Warhammer 40,000. I'm talking about the overfiend himself, Andy Chambers. Welcome to Cast Dice. How are you?
1: <laughs> Embarrassed now. Hi, Brad. I have no facial it- hair for you today. I'm sorry about that.
0: oh oh andy the 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 pictures if you just google you and oh my god it is glorious but it 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 took me back and i uh, for years i thought you were part of the development team for rogue trader because and please don't kill me for saying this your facial hair and your hair
1: (laughs) matched i have the look right yeah well
0: belonged in that picture in the back of the Rogue Trader book where everyone was jazzed up and um, had a little... heretics. Uh,
1: yeah, th- th- I did fit in, it's true. <laughs> but I didn't start at um, Games Workshop, well, not in the design studio, until 1990, which was after the rogue Trader, as I'm sure Rick told you.
0: Yes, um, that's
1: right. But you started,
0: I, like Rick, in mail order. How, how yes, did I you did. get started before we get to even the days as a troll? let's let's reel it back a little bit further, uh, Andy, what further got
1: back. You... <laughs> okay <laughs> further back
0: you are from Nottingham so yeah. you are from as what you've referred to in the past as the lead belt i've heard you say this before um what got you into gaming and what led you to the big empire
1: okay um when I was young very young um like a kid my dad had in his youth been into modeling aircraft he used to build like balsa wood aircraft flyable ones but a few of the ones he did were were also done up like there was a hurricane there was a Sopwith with camel that he built years before and he, he had them hung on my bedroom ceiling as a kid and i blamed that for sparking my initial interest uh nice. which did kind of stick and it, then it got into like Airfix models, Airfix kits, uh, and then playing games with Airfix tanks and, and little men and so mm-hmm. on. Um, that then branched into, because God bless him, my dad also got me a, a subscription to Military Modeler magazine.
0: Oh yeah, there you go.
1: Which is a very staid publication, you know, a lot of stuff about Napoleonic cuirassiers and things like that in it. But occasionally they do battle reports as well, and a, a bit of wargaming content, and, and through those, I sort of, sort of start to learn a bit more about gaming, and there'd be adverts in the back, and it, you know, th- this is like late seventies, early eighties, and at that time, fantasy and science fiction, you know, it was starting to expand past the point where it isn't just Jason and the Argonauts, you know, it, it is actually, you know, some miniatures are available. This, this strange game called Dungeons and Dragons, which was starting mm-hmm. to get popular. That in turn led me to going to various like lead toy soldier shops, um, of which one of them is, was Asgard Miniatures, which is based in Nottingham. Because, say, so for whatever reason, there are several. It's kind of sprung up around Nottingham, around the Midlands. Uh, and Asgard was right in the middle of Nottingham. So I went down there with my mate, you know, about 12 years old, something like that, one time. Uh, and they were, they were all hairy and mean, and they scared my mate away. But I kind of stuck overall, I liked it. I really like what they were selling. You know, it was mm-hmm. wild and interesting and exciting to me. Like nothing had been apart from perhaps Thunderbirds and Captain Scarlet up until that mm-hmm. point. So, and it, because, oh God, yeah. I mean, I think we're even, might even be talking. No, no. Star Wars had been out for a little while at that point. Anyway, very early days. And because of that, I mixed with a much older crowd of guys. Uh, Jez Goodwin was working for them as miniatures designer uh, for a while there. Another guy called Nick Bibby um who doesn't do miniatures design anymore he does big bronze sculptures these days but he was very well very well known um in the 80s uh, and 90s for for his miniature design and it's just mixing in that whole crowd Mm -hmm. through them as i grew up literally grew up in that environment uh some of them went and worked at games workshop at different times uh one of the guys wound up running their mail order out at Chewton street in eastwood which is a, like a little townlet just outside Nottingham. Mm-hmm. And, and he kind of hawked for extra ha- pairs of hands, mail-order trolls, to help out around Christmas because obviously they had a big rush on around there. So I worked as a mail-order troll for about six months. Uh, quit, went back again like the following year, I think it was. Did a bit more time then. But in the course of that, some of the people that I was working with at mail-order had actually graduated up uh, and got jobs at the studio. Mm-hmm. So I kind of had some. It's all it's all about who you know. So mm-hmm. I had some years on the ground, and I'd got into rogue trader a lot, which hadn't actually been a thing when I was working in mail order. And Adeptus Titanicus in particular over that period. And there was um, there was a release of solo Titans, as they were called on the blister packs, what we know as knights nowadays. Mm-hmm. However, there were no rules for them, which was unusual. Because Games Workshop, even back then, were very careful about, usually if they release miniatures, they release rules to go with them. It was part of mm-hmm. the package as far as they were concerned. It's one of the things I liked about them. But there were no rules for Solo Titans, so I was like, with, with the surety of youth, um, I wrote an article, sort of like stating them out. Uh, I tried to make it very much like a White Dwarf article of the period, and you know, put little quotes in and stuff like that, and wrote a bit of background mm-hmm. as well. So it wasn't just rules. And uh, I sent it in and in the hopes they would like it and publish it. Basically, and they asked me to come in. Um, again, it was in the middle of Nottingham, so it was only a bus journey. And basically, they liked it enough to get them to come in for a couple of weeks to finish the article off. Um, in that couple of weeks, I started off, so it's 1990, March 1990. And the whole reason I'd set this ball in motion is that I'd heard that Jervis Johnson, who wrote the Adepts of Titanicus stuff, wasn't around. The first day I was there, he was back. <laughs> He'd been on sabbatical for like six months or something like that, but he was back. So I was like, oh, so this isn't going to be a job then. Look, Jervis is back. We're doomed. Mm-hmm. So I sat down and, you know, I diddled around with the article. And the first thing I got to find out was it was an important lesson in, in working professionally, which was like the article that I'd sweated over and crafted and typed out by hand on a word processor because personal computers weren't widely available at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, was going in the trash because they they wanted to do something different with it. This whole idea of Mm -hmm. knights and they came from these feudal world, dinosaurs, all this sort of stuff. Whereas I'd just done like they were little titans, you know, they were just part of Titan legions. Um, So that all went in the trash and we rewrote it more or less from scratch and they had specific abilities that, you know, was in the brief that I'd never seen, of course, because I was on the outside. Mm -hmm. So lesson one, there you go. Whatever you think it is, it's not that. Um, But from there, that two weeks kind of extended out to three months, kind of extended out to a year, kind of extended out to 14 in the end of Working Games Workshop, just being given successively different things, because there was always more work than we could handle, uh, in effect, because there was a monthly magazine going out, which Mm -hmm. a lot of the time had a lot of gaming material in it at the time, because there wasn't necessarily the miniatures to fill it out. And... um, then on top of that, of course, there were supplements and army books. And as we developed going through um, Warhammer 4th edition was where it started. This idea of doing army books for each successive army. I mean, in the previous one, Warhammer 3rd edition, there, there'd only been like an army book which covered all of the armies. That's right. But clearly Rick had learned from that, that that was a terrible way of doing things and massively complicated. And it was actually a lot better on many different levels, not just because it was a lot of work, but also because... Most people don't care about 90% of the content of the book that yeah. you're trying to sell them. You know, they want to know about their chosen army. So he came up with this idea of doing army books, uh, which went down very, very well. The first kind of like big job I had, well, outside of one dwarf job that I did, was working on the High Elves book for four. That's right. And which was great because I worked with uh, Jess, again, Jess Goodwin directly, mm-hmm. and Bill King, William King. We wrote the Gotrick and Felix books and so forth. And he did all the background stuff. And Jazz obviously did the art and the design. And I did the rulesy bits, is really what it came down, came down to.
0: Nice.
1: Put together the army list, did the stat lines, all that sort of stuff. So naturally, fairly naturally after that, um, I was asked to do the, the Skaven book, Rick, obviously the Skaven book. Because mm-hmm. I had nice Skaven range already. You know, the Jazz had done beautiful miniatures. <laughs> and more to the point, one of the first things I did when I got to the studio was I think we were playing a Mighty Empires campaign at the time or something like that, and I collected a Skaven Army. hmm Like slammed it together over the course of three or four months over winter. Um, I don't even know if it was that long actually. Very, very quickly. But
0: you were <laughs> you were famous for that skaven for that scaven army because it was in White Dwarf.
1: Yes, and indeed. It, it came at, it came at a period when um painting armies for heavy metal wasn't really how it was done. They, they used to paint individual miniatures. Occasionally they'd do a unit sort of thing. But having a whole army done together was uh, a rarity. Mm-hmm. So it came down to people's collections. And people's collections tended to be kind of bitty as well. And because I basically because I put together the army out of the available miniatures, um, tried to use them a bit creatively in some places, did some conversions consistently based at consistent color schemes throughout. That was something I'd done with historical armies in the past, Mm -hmm. but it was a bit of a rarity for a a fantasy army to come out like that. And while the individual painting, I mean to this day, the individual painting's not that great, the mass effect of them was really, really good. I'd done Ork and Goblin armies in the past and stuff like Mm -hmm. that, not for Warhammer, but for Lord of the Rings and so on. So I knew how to theme an army. And they Mm -hmm. had a really strong theme, and it came across really well. It did. Uh, And once again, you know, always desperate for a bit of content for White Dwarf, because early 90s. So they basically tarted them up, heavy metal tarted them up a little bit by putting some nice banners on them. And um, we took photos of them and put them in White Dwarf. Mm -hmm. And people loved it, absolutely loved it. To this day... More than 30 years later, people still remember me for that army, contact me about it, and say, oh, hey, that's that Skaven army is what got me in Skaven, and, and so mm-hmm. on and so on. So it had this enormous disproportionate, I don't know, actually, there was a lot of work went to it on my end, I guess, but it had such a big impact at the time. I think it was also fairly rare to see, like, um it did happen, but to, to see one of the writers' armies uh, yeah. in White Dwarf was a bit of a rarity as well, so it made a bit of a splash on that front. I don't exactly. do people
0: have done a Skaven army before. Well, Andy, I got to ask, because the fourth edition book brought in some of my favorite Skaven spells, units. Clearly, we're going to get to Warhammer 40k in a second and a bunch of other things. But, I mean, let's talk about Giselles, uh, the <laughs> Screaming Bell, I mean, Death Frenzy, Skitter Leap. I mean, there are just so many things that are integrally Skaven that we just automatically latch onto a Skaven players, and I am one, that came from that book um, Mm. or were given rules for the first time that appeared in the fluff previously, you really breathed life because it was the first real Skaven book. A lot of the other races had been teased out more from my Mm. memory at least, but the Skaven seemed to pop up from the ground and all of a sudden they were invading, and it was it was really exciting. It was like Tyranids and Second Ed 40k. When I read that book, it was like, Oh my god, the sky is falling and it's full of spores and it's raining on us. What are we gonna do? Skaven just sort of popped up the other direction, it was cool.
1: Yeah, to be fair, um quite a lot of the legwork had already been done with Warhammer role-playing for that. Mm. They, they featured as sort of bad guys and so on in a number of different campaigns. So there was some, some nice background going on there. And there'd been, um, I think it was Warhammer Journal, Warhammer Compendium, years before when they first released the Skaven range of Methyls. Um Jez had written some background for them and done some art and so on, and banner designs and so on. And there was like an article in there, which is very much what I based the army book off. And obviously I had access direct access to Jez at that point as well. And I'd already worked with him on High Elves. So I could just go ask him. Basically, and talk about stuff. It's like I've had an idea, and all this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were there had a lot of good backup on that front because, say, I'd already rolled through, got my legs under me doing high elves. Um, so for Skaven, I, I basically, I I did Bill's job as well. I wrote the background. I actually got Bill to write some background for me, mm. some color text, but mainly I got him to teach me how to do it. Um, because. Bill is a a proper novelist, he's a a proper writer. So for him, the struggle was always sort of like trying to write something in 250 words rather than 1,000 or 2,000. So there was a lot of discipline around that about trimming down. I mean, obviously I wasn't interested in writing novels, so doing it quick was good as far as I was concerned. But he he taught me a bit about narrative, basically. Um, So that was the narrative side. Armiless side, obviously I'd done that kind of thing before and it was kind of in my wheelhouse and uh, general imagery and so on, I got Jess to rely on. What you saw, things like Gisales and things, were mainly responses of me playing with the Skaven army based off the old original one that had been in the Warhammer armies for third, Mm -hmm. finding out where it was uh, flawed in some ways, Mm -hmm. almost unplayable in others, and putting in things to fix it overall. So Gisales, well... The the original Warhammer Armies version has got you, you basically got two, three rangers. No, no, you've got a few different range sources, but they're all like slings or death wind mm. globes or warp fire throwers. Very short range. Yeah. So you'd have this early game which consisted of like scrambling across the tabletop towards what was very commonly, surprisingly, a line of cannons and dwarves with crossbows in many mm. cases. It was very gloves off, Warhammer 3rd edition. Yeah. So, um, A, that was a bit dull because he had nothing to do offensively in that time. And B, you really needed something to shoot back with. So, yeah. I conceived of having something with a bit longer range. And Giselle's were already present. There was a very nice character model with a Giselle in one hand mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And there was a few wheel lock pistols and stuff. So, it was just an extrapolation. I talked to Jess about it. Ooh, Giselle's, yeah, cool. Plus, it's a, it's a cool name. So, we put in there like a unit, sniper unit in effect for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I, I played around. I've even still got an Empire cannon that's painted up to be a Skaven captured cannon and things like that. That desperate for things to fire back with. Mm-hmm. So, that was Giselle's. What else did you mention? Skitterleap and Death Frenzy. Yes. Same issue. Same issue. A lot of time spent slogging along getting missile to death. How can you short circuit it? Spells. I'd also worked on Warhammer Battle Magic, so I'd done all the different colors of magic for Warhammer. La, la, la. So very comfortable with putting in uh, a new school of magic for them entirely, because they didn't really fit too well into any of the others, or none of the others gave them what they needed, more to the point. And I could make it 13 spells and all this sort of stuff and tie it in. So I did. Um, But of those, well, warp lightning is pretty important as well, because, again, it scratches that itch of range offensive. That isn't mm. units of bowmen. Um, but Skittle Leap and Death Frenzy, they're a, they're a combo pair to basically yeah. take one unit in your army, and like throw them into the middle of the enemy army to cause as much trouble as And then as go crazy. Before, yeah. And go crazy before they inevitably die. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's absolutely what it was in there for. And um, it remains to this day, I see, because it is kind of a bit of a necessity for a, a non missile, non cavalry army like yeah. Skaven. Because while they were individually on foot reasonably quick, it was a it was a long way to go from yeah. your baseline to their baseline. Oh, if yeah. They weren't coming out to play. So um, I needed solutions for that really, which is what all those things are about. Um, nice. but that's why you as a player respond well to them, because they actually scratch an itch that you, you didn't even know you had before collecting the army, or perhaps you mm-hmm. did, and they scratched that itch. Do you still have
0: the famous, infamous Andy Skaven Army.
1: Uh, yes, I do. Yes, I do. Right. It's it's in this very room, actually. It's in cases, but that's because I haven't got glass cabinets in here yet.
0: I love the optimism.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes. One day. Yes. One day it will go back on display. Well, uh, one day it will go. I'll open those cases and see if anything's left of it. I got not them not so long ago. Actually, they're mostly attacked.
0: You came in to the studio. We, we've talked a little bit about the games, obviously, you've worked on. But as far as jumping into 40K, mm-hmm. you slid in at the end of Rogue Trader, and you were working on 2nd Edition as it came out, and you worked on Dark Imperium. Am I getting that right?
1: Yeah, Rick got me in. I don't think I did an awful lot on Warhammer 40,000 prior to it. No. I so say I was mostly doing stuff to do with Space Marine uh, was the main thing I was busy on early on, um, but obviously that's very 40k related. Yep. When it came time to, to do Second Edition, because I was like rules guy and established a, I have a basic understanding of mathematics and rules. Rick pulled me in to help with producing the 40k Second Edition box like the starter box set, you know, the classic one with the mm-hmm. orcs and the marines on the cover.
0: And the, pla- and the cardboard orc dreadnought. And the cardboard
1: dreadnought. And the cardboard orc dreadnought, yeah, that was my idea. Okay. So, yeah, which I'd always really love the, the starter sets because it was one of the things that got me into Games Workshop was the Adeptus Titanicus set because unlike previous games, it actually included the rules and the miniatures and some terrain and the templates and the dice mm-hmm. and the reference cards and everything you needed to play was there. Those
0: styrofoam box. buildings. I still I have know. them. Genius. They're great. <laughs> yep.
1: Yeah, they were really great as well. For the time mm-hmm. in particular, they were amazing. So I had a lot of time for that. And the fact they were doing it for 40k, which I liked, and I I'll say i played Rogue Trader back in the day. I'd just mainly been diverted by doing other things in the intervening time. Um, it was very exciting to me. Mm-hmm. So basically for the, the start of the game, I, I wrote the bulk of the rules, pulled together all the stuff that had come out through White Dwarf and um, the various sort of compendiums and stuff, chapter approved as well.
0: Rogue Trader started out as basically a role-playing game. And then as mm. Rick talked about, it was just piled on top, army list upon army list upon article in white dwarf upon expansion and the game i mean i came in with that game and mm-hmm. i just remember feverishly hunting down every single issue of white dwarf i could get my grubby paws on because everything you needed was there and mm-hmm. you like you had to pull these scraps together and you'd walk around with this giant box of books just to be able to play a game
1: yeah, was That was that Wanted. was one of the primary uh, motivations in doing second edition was to try mm-hmm. and drag all that information together. Because, um, yeah, it got to the point where there were several different books uh, with extra I and mean, then, you know, not little optional bits of rules, but like core rules, things like the overwatch rules and things like mm-hmm. that. We're all in different places. The, the vehicle rules were often a different place because they revamped them through white. Rules mm-hmm. and all that stuff. So, so it was like
0: plastic transparencies that you put over the, outline yeah, of the vehicle. Yeah. <laughs> I played, I was there.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Crazy times. Um, yeah, they were. yeah. We'll return to that later when we get to third. So there was a lot of different stuff in different places. So I was tasked with pulling it all together into like a cohesive rule book or uh, yeah, rule book uh, and dealing with some of it in different ways is the way I decided to do it because clearly it, it needed a bit of corralling in general. Yeah. The whole kind of like wild pick your own army list. Hey, I've showed up with nothing but a 50 inch radius rad missile had to go because the biggest, the reason there were so many books out there and so many different articles and so on People didn't want a role-playing game overall, no. a GM'd experience. You know, that's a lot of fun and great narrative if you've got someone to do it. What most people had and what most people achieve is themselves, their army, an opponent, their army. And they needed to know how to play a game under those circumstances, not with somebody else there to help everything move along. So it had to become a, a lot more of a kind of like, Competitive confrontational game, which is kind of like what what Warhammer was by that point anyway. So it wasn't a huge transition to go between the two, but obviously various things had to go get pulled together, much as I'd done for um, Warhammer Battle Magic, hmm. where you, you just kind of like woo, woo nearly. I mean, not that I can claim Warhammer Battle Magic is some great marvel of balance because it's not, but it, it got things under control to a certain extent, and yeah. that's what Second Ed was for doing as well, getting it all yeah. in one place and cohesive.
0: It definitely felt a lot better to play. I distinctly remember the first time I put Second Ed on the table and I started pushing it around and I had a thin little rule book and I was working off the army list that came in that box and it felt amazing. It was just Mm. like, oh, look at this. It it all works. (laughs) Um, And then, of course, we got additional army books, uh, much like the Warhammer Fantasy 4th Edition, Uh, And those were fantastic as well, because of course I was collecting those for fantasy at the time. And just to be able to get those for 40 K was wonderful. And the game was very granular. I mean, you could really fall in love with the detail of that game, but a lot of what I still think of Warhammer 40,000 and I played for God, decades didn't come until later. Um, And I know we're going to talk about that in a second, but Any other um, big memories you have of second edition or the development of those armies?
1: Second edition. Yeah, the the codex. The codexes were a big thing. I I say we'd come off doing Warhammer army books. So we we very much had a kind of a format that Rick had worked out for doing that. And it was just a question of rolling through into um, doing the various different factions in Warhammer 40,000 it wasn't until the air uh, towards the end of doing those that we, we start to really go mad and get our arrows. under us, which is when we did like things like chaos, space Marines and Tyranids
0: chaos, Space Marines is one of the best books ever written. Hands
1: I down an award for that one, the John um, Blanche
0: page in that book. I I had that framed in my house for a long time because it was <laughs> that double spread. It was glorious.
1: Love it. Yeah. A lot of lightning in a bottle in that one. I suspect. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of laid, laid a lot of things but yeah going back to the the starter set the kind of the core set mm. was actually a surprisingly tight little game if you just play with box contents of you know, here's some squads of marines versus some gretchen or mm-hmm. versus a few other orc squads it was really in uh, second edition 40k's happy place because mm. it was it was still at its heart very much road trader, very much kind of like role playing experience okay we dressed it up more as a competitive game giving you tools to make it into a competitive game's mission cards and stuff like that, so that you had a natural scenario and things like this to play around with. But the game itself, as you say, it was very granular. It was like, I fire, my sergeant fires his bolt pistol at Gretchen. Mm-hmm. He hits. He wounds it. The Gretchen doesn't save, of course, so it's removed, yeah, and so on. And at that level, it played really well. But of course, yeah. the immediate thing, as it happened with Road Trader, was that armies got bigger, uh, more vehicles, more squads, more stuff, more psychic powers, and so on. So uh, the the great ramp-up of complexity began at that point, which is ironic that I cite Chaos Space Marines and Turons, because I think the early uh, Codex books were about 80 pages long, 80 to 96 mm-hmm. pages long. By those ones, we were up to like 128 and stuff oh, like yeah. that. They were, they were real wedgy,
0: mm-hmm. wedgy, books. And books like Orcs and the Tyranids, and to a degree, a little bit, the Chaos Base Marines, but they added so many complex units that had intricate rules. I'm thinking, uh, shock attack gun, I'm looking at you, or maybe that's rogue trade. No, it was definitely second ed, too. Um, oh, what's the giant rocket that would land and cause an earthquake?
1: Pulsar rockets,
0: yes, the pulsar rocket. I just all of have those memory. come
1: out of like earlier, like. Here yes. we go, and places like that. Mm-hmm. While the orcs books, um so they were actually rogue trader things carried over into second yeah. squid catapults and things as yes. well. Yeah, that's all orc stuff you're no- you're mentioning. I notice. <laughs> uh,
0: well, I do remember. um I'm just uh, the biovores. They would just spit hmm. out, and you biovores would have to and figure spore out
1: mines. Yep.
0: E- where each <laughs> spore mine landed, and then you'd the have to drifts. resolve each one. Yeah, and okay. whether it would pop if you got too close to things. And I remember that being a phase in and of itself. Because I played in several Baltimore Grand Tournaments for Second Ed. And I played against... I actually played with Tyranids one year. But I didn't use a BioVore specifically because I didn't want to bother with those rules. But I ended up playing like three other Tyranid players. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, God. I sh- Oh, here we go.
1: It was a giant rule sync. It must be said, <laughs> I'll confess now, but I was young. Um, I didn't know any better when it came to designing games. So I only knew one of the sort of games that I'd played. And, you know, I played them and I liked them. So there are a lot of, like, little complex subsystems that are brought yeah. in for games, uh, uh, for those games in particular, for particular yeah. unit types where, okay, we've got this unique unit type. Let's write completely unique rules for it. Yeah, makes perfect sense, you know. But once you sort of take a step back and look at the totality of it, I mean, I don't know. As you say, it's granularity. Some people like that sort of mosaic-style complexity. Yeah. But the fact you really had to know your army and know the rules about it, and preferably if you're fighting against another army, it's best to have some idea of what they're capable of, but good luck yep. if you didn't have the book and you haven't fought them before. There's a certain yeah, appeal it's... to that. There is a certain appeal to that. But I have to say, sitting on my throne of games design decades later, I'm like, oh, dear. It was all very <laughs> ill-disciplined, wasn't it, overall?
0: Well, if you had asked me at the time, I would have said it was the greatest thing ever. And yeah. I wouldn't have traded it for the world. And <laughs> and spoilers, in a couple of minutes, we're going to talk about trading it for the world. Because mm. um, there's another book that crept along that changed things. But I, I don't want to keep mentioning this and then pulling back. But we'll get there. Tease. Um, Tease. Ah, that guy i do want before we get out of second ed um when rick came on he said that second ed's rules of course folded into a separate game system in and of itself and i know that you worked quite a lot on it specifically the outlanders expansion can you talk to us a little bit about necromunda because i played the hell out of that game Um, One Mardi Gras, I escaped New Orleans because I was living there at the time, and my partner and I at the time went to the UK, and I made the mistake of walking into a Games Workshop store and spent almost my entire budget for the trip on Necromunda and a whole lot of gangs. So please talk to us about this, uh, if only to, uh, years later, make me feel less guilty about spending all that money.
1: That was money well spent. You could probably sell it on eBay now and make it all back um necromunda yeah i forget exactly when we did it in relationship shortly after second edition 40k um at the time tom kirby had bought out brian ansell and was now in control of games workshop and he was busy ringing the changes opening up a lot more stores was his main thrust but as part of like making it more appealing um to potential shareholders in the future because he got his iron going public He wanted that the diktat came down that we needed to do two big box games a year. Previously, Mm -hmm. we'd kind of done one around Christmas time, yeah, and it had been you know Warhammer 4th or um second edition 40k. Mm -hmm. Now we needed to do two, so clearly that wasn't going to cut it anymore. Um, so we started doing other games as well. And an idea that had been floating around forever since before I started the studio. Uh, under the name of confrontation was this idea of like doing a, a gang game it's very much a spawn of kind of like brian ansell's um reign in the if you went back further to before he did games which brian ansell had a, another rule set called laser burn mm-hmm. um which kind of had a similar kind of like a vibe and aesthetic to it it was like scrappy skirmishy stuff was the idea behind it and that had been developed up and, you know, some background had been written art had been done for doing um, a game based off of Laser Burn and its ilk to be published through White Dwarf, I think it was initially. Never went in, never got used, partially because, and I know this because I ran some games of Confrontation with Jervis, like Demo Games of an uh, Early Games Day in Derby, is because the game was more or less unplayable. Yeah. Yeah, having played very, some very of the things much. they put
0: in White Dwarf, <laughs> the miniatures yeah. were amazing, and I owned a mm. bunch of them. But mm. wow, yeah it, yeah, it it didn't feel good.
1: So when we're sort of like, oh crap, now we need to do two big box Buc- games a year. So of course, Rick, being a bright spark, remembered all that. I think he still had scars from it, frankly. <laughs> Trying to get Brian's rules to work, but he remembered all that and went, well, why don't we? put together second edition 40k rules as they stand now with that concept and come up with a a game of like you know hive gangs duke in hell and um he wrote me in once again to to handle the rules side of it he wrote the backgroundy side of it and we did gang lists and so on and jez designed and designed a bunch of different gang house styles which were very distinctive really helpful Mm -hmm. as well and we did separate gang lists for them as well and we'd just come a few years before Jervis had been doing uh, Blood Bowl. Again, I'm not sure which edition it was, like fourth or fifth edition Blood Bowl, I can't remember. Anyway, as part of doing that, he'd run a campaign, um, well, a league, several leagues. Hmm. So we we had a lot of kind of like and with development of your your players and all this sort of stuff, and that worked brilliantly. We'd ha- everyone had a great time playing in the Blood Bowl League, and it had been really, really popular around the studio because we used to, you know, play stuff at the studio, post stuff up Mm -hmm. in the tea room, all this kind of stuff. So we knew we were onto something good with that, Uh, and basically we we hooked in what we knew from Blood Bowl uh, and what we knew from 2nd Edition 40K and made the bastard love child of them both, and that was Necromunda, um, which was really, really good. And again, we we knew we were onto something good because we ran a studio campaign for necromunda posting stuff up in the tea room having a league table all this sort of stuff mm-hmm. and it was really popular again people really like playing it and again we got a lot of client on the ground feedback for what we were doing um, in developing the game from that and just good ideas for later a lot of stuff that we stashed away for outlanders and and it was a big big hit and yeah i basically got to fly doing outlanders solo as a, a supplement for it, were introduced like redemptionists, which ironically are another laser burn thing. And, oh, were they? Uh, yeah, 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 the Redemptionists. Well, originally, originally, they're, they're actually nicked out of a, a French comic book by Philippe de Ruyet, um called Lone Sloan uh, Delirious. And they're, they're, a, yeah. they're a faction in there called redemptionists. And if you look at the original laser burn miniatures, you can tell they're just a direct. Yeah. I, I'm not going to say. Anything more than that, actually. But yeah, want to be too mean. They're very inspired by that artwork, clearly, and it was very inspirational. Mm-hmm. To be fair, everything was a bit fast and loose back then. What can I tell you? But I'd always liked the concept of them. Yeah, of these kind of red priests who burned out heresy and all this sort of stuff. And it's like oh, it seemed it sounded very Imperium to me. So, lob them in. Scavies was always on the on the cards. Scavies and Mutes mm-hmm. as well. Um, what else did we do? Spirers, That's right. We wanted a noble right. gang. And in the original confrontation, this concept, for this brat gang, yes, um, which didn't feel like it fit too well with the way we'd taken Necromunda because it had gone very kind of like, it was almost post-apocalyptic in yeah. you know, the roots of the hive sort of a thing. So that didn't fe- feel like it fit too well. But the idea of like crossing that with Predator or something like that, where they donned their hunting suit and go and hunt yes. the paws sort of thing, that sounded appealing. So we we did them as kind of like knockoff superheroes, basically, you know. Ah, uh, it's the Batman, Batman. no, <laughs> and so forth. It's the bat, yeah. so they could come in and like you know, beat on poor people, very superhero like. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we had a lot of fun with Outlanders as well. Yeah, in the end, that's right. Awesome. was that was that it? Just the three three different gang types? Oh no, we did Batskins as well. Yeah, there you go. And
0: there was also <laughs> did Mad Donna appear? In that, or was did she? Was she in the? She wasn't in the core game.
1: I don't honestly remember. She was in one of the. She might have been in the core. But yeah, Madonna Rulante, Uh and a few other characters. I know we did a bunch of special characters for Outlanders, but I feel like there were some in Necromunda itself as well. Yeah. Not quite sure on the split there. I could look, but I'm not going to. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure people will rush to come and tell you. They'll go. Actually, uh, I think you'll find.
0: I'm sure people are yelling at the TV right now. <laughs> How can you not
1: their... remember? They're, they're literally on a train
0: or driving, yelling at their tea—you know, windscreen. Well, speaking of uh, tea rooms, I will segue or I will digress into a little tangent for 10 seconds only because I know you know the people involved. And I think you might think it's funny john Stollard, now owner of warlord games then acting ceo of the us um i was terrified of him and my boss had quit during the christmas season so i had to work for john directly which you know if you're the lowest of the low on the sales ladder is terrifying where you have to report to the ceo daily so <laughs> i reported to him and we got to know each other a little you know over time and um I stupidly challenged him to a game of Warhammer 40,000, at which point he said, I don't do that sort of thing, um, which I thought was hilarious at the time. But I eventually um, used my fledgling dis- sales skills, and I talked him into a game of 40K. He didn't own an army, uh, mm. so he borrowed one of the other trade salesmen's, uh, Blake Schrode's uh, Imperial Fists. But I brought my Judge Dread themed Arbidi army from mm. uh, Citadel Journal, and we set up in the tea room... And uh, we played, and we got a whole bunch of really impressive terrain from the studio, and we were setting up and playing. (laughs) And uh, because the tea room for the U.S. facility was uh, next to the warehouse, all the Blister sisters kept coming in, none of whom actually played this game. And none of the – a surprising number of them had never even seen it played. And so they all came in and were like, what is this? And I was (laughs) like, this is what you –
1: Every day. They're, they're just the CEO they're was just going. Widgets, oh,
0: God, I can't believe I'm doing this. It was uh it was it was a wonderful moment.
1: So but who won?
0: Uh John ducked out at the end of turn four, and okay. uh I ended up finishing the game against Blake. Uh yeah. But so I think he didn't have had the had good enough- sense
1: to lose to him then. Who was the <laughs> wookie win?
0: They, I was about to say, let the Wookiee win. But yeah, my, my sales team were like, don't let the Wookiee win. And I was sitting there going, oh, I'm going to let the Wookiee win. This Hello, dude. I like my job. Anyway, <laughs> let's segue just a little bit into one of the most, from my experiences, one of the most controversial addition changes in gaming history. Um, now, I might be overselling that, maybe overbaking it, but you're laughing. In so. the history
1: of the world, no other gaming change has been so controversial. Actually, I disagree about that. But yes, yes. you're talking about second but, edition 40K, yeah. to third edition 40K.
0: There th- Now, Rick did blame this squarely on bean counters when he was on. And he said that there was the idea for this wonderful, complex, rich second edition game that was never made instead the gears got shifted and it went to thin
1: skinny dexes
0: skinny dexes at the time i remember getting the box and i i loved the look of the plastic space marines i loved the art i loved everything that was going on with it i i pre-ordered the box i was a i was an avid grand tournament player at that point. I traveled across the U S to play in the Baltimore grand tournament every year. And of course I I wasn't going to miss my chance this year. I got my ticket. I got my box and I opened it up and I started reading and went, this is a very different game. And (laughs) I, at the, my first thought was, Oh wow, this is different. And it, it it was a total tonal change, but I in p- living in New Orleans, there wasn't really the chance to play that that often because at the time there wasn't a games workshop store there like there is now. And there, you know, people were drinking and having fun and they weren't really painting toy soldiers. So hmm. my big gaming weekend every year was to go to the grand tournament. So I painted a new army. I went to the grand tournament, never having played third. And I basically learned while I um, you know, I pushed models around a tabletop, had read the rules back to front a bunch of times. Not terrible up way to book. learn,
1: it must be said. Um, oh, yeah. Could be a actually, terrible way, but I was thinking specifically for 3rd Ed, it'd be fairly did, forgiving of that kind of thing.
0: I did really well, actually. But 3rd Edition r- ruffled a lot of feathers. And I know a lot of people, I mean, I can think of people today that haven't played since 2nd Edition, and they still play 2nd Edition. I am not one of those people. I have not played second edition since second edition. However, when I think back, cause during COVID lockdowns, um, my friend, John and I actually, John asked if I would like to play a game of road trader and we played and it was an incredibly clunky experience. Um, <laughs> it, it hurt it. I couldn't believe space Marines were toughness three. They moved four inches. It was unbelievable. When I after playing that game, I pulled out all my second ed stuff and I started to read it again. And mm-hmm. I had been reading the fluff again and again for years, but I hadn't actually read the rules. And I was shocked at what I read because nothing that I assume like a space marine being toughness four, having a three up armor save games being six turns games being played on a four by six table. Yes. staples that have now gone to <laughs> none so of this many is in Rogue
1: trader system. yeah that's right right we put it all in in second
0: yeah well
1: <laughs> that actual playing the game part yeah
0: is the origin of all of those things well mm. maybe not all of them but most of them particularly the six turns and the mm-hmm. six by four table which has been a crucial part of 40k slash countless other game systems since it's the industry standard. Andy, can you talk to us about? I mean, people love to crap on third edition, but I think <laughs> I think it is literally one of the most influential editions and so underrated. I think okay, <laughs> talk to us a little bit about it because. The development going from second to third must have been a hell of a journey.
1: Yeah. One thing I'll say to you right now is whenever you do an addition change, people are unhappy. Right. Some people are unhappy about it because they like the game as it is. That's why they're playing the game right now, obviously, because they like it (laughs) the way it is. And the fact you have to do an addition change has got nothing to do with them and it's not being done for their benefit. So obviously they don't like the fact that you're doing it. Uh, Which is not to excuse uh, not making those people happy. It's just it is a fact of life that when you do this sort of thing, now why would you do such a thing? Is is the next question you have to answer, and it's like, well, sad truth is for commercial reasons. Yeah. Um, You're making games for money um, on behalf of your employer. God bless. And I mentioned before that second edition had mainly been a process of taking what had been in Rogue Trader and what had been published subsequent to that to make it into a playable tabletop, sort of like competitive game rather than a role-playing game. Getting it all into one place and getting it sort of like marching in step with each other so it it, it all built towards thing and it didn't go in different directions all over the place. Second edition patted all that together. The reason we needed to do that was because most people that played second edition were just having, you know, head-to-head games that didn't want a huge amount of like extra homework to do to figure out what the scenario was yeah over the course of second edition it became clearer and clearer that people were playing with bigger and bigger armies mm-hmm. uh, partially because more stuff was available you know and as stuff became available people collected it and added it to, it to their army that didn't mean they took out anything that was already there they right. just had more stuff and right. played with more stuff and more armies became available mm-hmm. as well you mentioned our bts and all this sort of stuff so because we did Spin-off armies and things like Mm -hmm. that. We had a lot of fun with it, lots of fun. And over the course of an edition, this just happens with games; they get more and more bloated. Um, I always uh, use the analogy of like it's a pyramid on its point. You know, the bigger it gets, the more unstable it becomes, and eventually you get to a point where you either have to shore it up or build a different pyramid. Right. As we approached third edition, it was clear it was coming down the pike because, say, at this point, we've been doing two games a year for years. Third edition, uh, third edition was coming up, and I'd assumed we would be shoring it up, doing what we are doing with second edition to move into third and you know take out some of the slightly crazier stuff, get things working under systems and things like that. But actually, um, there'd been a big call that I didn't know about that Rick did because he had to deal with that end of things from re- retail to simplify the game down and make it play faster. Because it has to be said, second edition games are not quick to play.
0: No, and they're not. The more
1: stuff you put on the table, the slower they get.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and obviously, they, they wanted a point where they could have a game with somebody in a store and it'd be really, you know, 20, 30 minutes and you got to a resolution that kind of thing because life was speeding up and this is mid-90s we're in now. So Rick had gone through and sort of like murdered a lot of his darlings from second um, before he even talked to me about it and kind of like, we did a game playing uh, under the third edition rules that come up with, and I remember my initial, my initial response is I was horrified, absolutely horrified by what was going on, uh, particularly in re- regard to vehicles, because vehicles had been yes. this almost jewel in the crown of your mm-hmm. army before, as you say, with the funny little templates and the locational hit diagrams and all this sort of stuff. There was a lot of time and energy lavished onto vehicles in the old system yes. because they were super expensive. Mm-hmm. You know, to buy one and put it in your army—not not just in points, but in like real-world money—was mm-hmm. a big investment because there were very few plastic vehicles at the time. A lot of them were like metal or plastic with loads of metal extra bits clamped onto mm-hmm. them, so that they, they were a major investment. Dreadnoughts and stuff like that—super expensive—so they were really treated as something special. Whereas, what Rick had done in third, he'd, he'd stripped it right back down to just armor values and a, a damage roll. Um, I don't even know if we had glancing hits at that point. We might not have done. Um, so I was like, you know, what do you mean you shoot my war buggy, You don't have to find out whether you hit the gunner or, or not, and all this sort of stuff. Uh, and the AP system, I think he, I think he came up with that at that point as well. So rather than that, but that I could get behind that more because modifiers are kind of the devil and I'd very much turned against them out. And when I say modifiers, I mean yeah. minus one, minus two. Mm-hmm. Add this to your dire, take that off. Every step that you do like that adds yeah. a tiny bit of extra brain processing power that's needed as you're playing through the game. And it slows it down. Mm-hmm. Tiny amount, but incrementally. You know, and they, they build up over the course of the game. that's one of the things that actually makes games longer, is oh, yeah. having modifiers. Um, so... He killed modifiers, and I was kind of glad to see those go. But I was a bit horrified by the the build, uh, the uh, the way that the vehicles are being treated, and so forth. But you know, this was the way forward because the standard size army that people were using Blood Point for Second Edition was like three times the size of what we'd, you know, really designed the game for. Yeah. And God bless them; people still play under those conditions because they love it, like you. And as you mentioned, people have gone back to it to this day. Um, because they love the granularity and they, they love the kind of like the wacky narratives that you can get from the tank mm-hmm. explodes, its turret flies off, it lands on your war boss, all that kind of stuff. Um, it's funny because I know old season players who've gone back to second edition because that gives them what they want. Yeah. But there is a vast, 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 vast number of people that want to be able to play a game to a conclusion within about an hour and a half. Yeah. And that meant that there had to be some sacrifices made just for practical purposes. So that, that was kind of the, the core philosophy behind it, um, was to make the game more viable for bigger armies. Now, there's a natively commercial reasoning behind that from Games Workshop's perspective of like, hey, we don't want your army to be full or you to stop buying things because you have your full army. We want you to be able to play with as much as you like. Mm -hmm. so that was going on there but actually actually underneath that naked commercialism there's something that's good for gamers because gamers are a wide spectrum of people some people like complex games some people don't some people are just there to paint the miniatures really and they, they can kind of push them table you know push them around the tabletop for a bit for a bit of fun but if it's not fun they'll lose interest and they might lose interest in playing at all uh, plus all those people that you, you've gotten for the first time. It's their first ever tabletop miniatures game. You've got them for 10 minutes right now. How can you get their heads into the game and get them to see what you're, you're offering as this like this massive world to come and enjoy and explore as long as you don't trip them up in the first five minutes with too many modifiers? Yeah. So there, there were a lot of practical concerns that went into it, some of them commercial, some of them actual design decisions of like making let's face it, objectively, a better game all round. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. not for the specific things you want, but in a general sense, a better game. That went into third. Along with those were the hideous practical concerns when it came to codexes of, well, actually, no, that came from retail as well. Those big fat 128-page books, hard, hard deal to sell somebody on buying a book that big. They, they wanted something that was smaller and punchier and cheaper to self-codexes, because that was an essential part of the collecting process. But trying to sell somebody on, like, oh, you can have these models, or you can buy this big, thick book that you have to read to collect this army, it wasn't a great selling technique as far as they were concerned. Yeah. They, they want something slicker. So, between those two things, horror for the second edition players. What have you done to my favourite game in all the world? You monsters. You absolute monsters. Uh, which i I empathize with, I'm sorry guys, I really am yeah. um, it's still there though, people still play it now, mm-hmm. so it's not like it went away, it was just the the new tranche of players coming into Warhammer 40,000 were being taught 3rd edition rules rather than 2nd edition rules so I can understand the the sudden lack of opponents as well being gutting, but that was what it was, it wasn't my fault, mm-hmm. Rick made me do it if he didn't make that clear he was a liar, because he did and i just did the best i could with the cards i was dealt
0: but i mean you can understand why people might get bent given that it wasn't just a new set of rules and they weren't significantly changed because they were but it was all of the books all of those glorious army books that we'd had and the codexes Mm. we had in second ed all of a sudden they were gone and they were being everyone was starting from scratch i i'm so glad i kept those books for years and years and years and through the Thindex years, um, mm. I used the fluff from the second ed books and the rules from the third ed books. And I thought that worked really well. Um, that's so that's we, a
1: good compromise and perfectly valid because it's – we tried not to invalidate the previous codexes when we were doing the third edition ones. They were really right. um, as much to get the army lists out there as fast as possible because that was the other realities that we'd, we'd done – the codex for second edition. We churned them out over the course of years. Right. And some of them we never even got to over the course of second edition either. Mm-hmm. Sorry about that, squat players. You know, you didn't yep. make the cut. So we, we knew that with changing edition, and it was sufficient of a, a mechanical change that you needed to have new army out. And we actually yeah. did a, a pretty good set to go in third edition. And that was a glorious thing as well because it meant we could actually rebalance the fuckers at the Mm -hmm. same time in some vague sense of balance rather than like here's just like half a decade's worth of blancmange and good luck finding balance in there. Yeah. Um, So you you could actually have like a year zero on everybody's stats, everybody's costs. That was a great thing design wise. And I have no regrets about that. mm -hmm. But the reality was we knew we'd be having to push out codexes basically monthly on the same sort of schedule as white dwarf i don't think we actually hit that in the end but that was kind of the plan and okay we had slightly more guys working at that time in, in the design department but there still weren't many of us No, uh, and obviously the the art and the miniatures resource and the photography resource and the layout resource would, would have to be spread amongst those codex as well and all of that combined with the necessity of like, we want smaller books, uh, cheaper books to sell. Then skinny Skinnydexas was the way we did it. And to put it in perspective, for those who weren't around for this, uh, I mean, I talked about the second ed-, ed ones were like 80 to 96 pages. They started to s- extend up to 128 towards the end of uh, the edition. Things mm-hmm. creeping at the end of edition, who, who would have thought it. Of- the third edition, they were uh, scheduled 48 pages. We did some in as little as 24, if I remember yeah. rightly. The obsession about eight, eight pages and things multiplied by eight pages, by the way, is to do with the printing process, for yes. those of you reading at home or listening at home, uh, basically because they, they print in eight sheet blocks mm-hmm. is the reality of it. That's what you get off the roll, and then you divide it up to make your pages. So multiples of eight. Because otherwise, if it's not a multiple day, the other pages you've got will be literally. When you when you get something where it says these pages intentionally left blank, that's why, because you're going to get them anyway. So well, in our case, it's like, well, we're going to have forty eight pages, so we will use every inch of them as much as we possibly can, and get an army list and get as much background in as we can. And that was the challenge. And again, um, from a creative sense. Many times the, having boundaries on what you can do is good for you. It actually yeah. makes you focus on what's important. Uh, so I am proud of the the codexes we did in third edition. They're very pointy. Yeah. Very pointy indeed. They, they weren't as indulgent as like 128 pages on whatever you like, but they weren't as indulgent as 128 pages on whatever you like either. So I think we did well with what we had.
0: I'd agree because as someone who played a lot of third edition, um, I worked, I started working for workshop uh, in third edition Uh, towards the end. Oh God, not, not even towards the end towards maybe even towards the beginning. uh, I came on right when Battlefleet Gothic and dark angels came out. Mm -hmm. So still fairly early in the piece. And I played third edition religiously. Um, All of a sudden I was surrounded by people who played it as well. And so I ended up playing, gut loads of third edition. (laughs) And I think, as you say, I think those books had so much in them as far as rules and units that you could experiment and put on the tabletop. Sure. They didn't have pages of rules for each unit, but it meant that you would use them. It meant that they were easily picked up and it, they all had their own flavor and feeling. And it was, it was, it was just a wonderful time to be a 40 K player in my opinion. Um, and I do want to finish, I, I occurred to me, I didn't, while you were talking that I, I didn't finish this when I went to that first third edition event and I played and I was nervous about being, you know, Oh God, this is a different, this isn't the 40 K I'd played before. Let me try it out. Let me try and learn it. I don't think I had gotten very, I mean, there were a few out of years of playing in the grand tournaments. There were a few games that went one way or the other gloriously. But if you were having a close game, there was no way you were going to finish that in second edition. Yes. And I remember walking out of the first third ed edition and keeping in mind, new edition, I'd never played it. New player, quote unquote. And I finished all six games in one four of the six and had gone, wow, that is a much faster, cleaner gaming experience and i which is why i never played second edition again because in my opinion this was the way to play now and of course that design aesthetic or not even design aesthetic just the feel of that went through fourth edition fifth edition sixth edition and it wasn't till the end there when it was spiraling into seventh and then was had to be hard reset for eighth that that finally came to an end. But Andy, your work on that edition, I mean, that followed through how many iterations? Mm. That's a yeah. hell of a framework to start with.
1: I had good help at the time. I say, we actually had some good guys on board in uh, in game development. I was over fiend of a few different heads, mm-hmm. um, like Phil Kelly, Graham McNeil, uh, Gav actually helped out as well. That's right. Um, Pete Haynes a bit later on I brought in as well, so we had some some good heads working together for that period of time. But yeah, peak of my powers. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs>
0: right on, right on. Well, I do want to ask about something else because my one of my favorite books of any game system, and I love a game system, the art in any book. My favorite to this day is Space Marine. Um, the original Horace Heresy was always just, it was my jam. I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. And I loved it when Black Library finally started coming out the novels to the point where today I went out and I got the oh, well. Horace Heresy second edition rule book. Um, I haven't played Warhammer 40,000 since sixth edition. So I'm gonna give it a go and see what see what happens. But Andy, as someone who was part of the team that came up with, I know that Horace Heresy was originally, I believe, mentioned in White Dwarf, um, and I think Rick uh, talked it's realm about realm of
1: chaos. It's realm of chaos. It's originally yeah. mentioned. Oh, it. that's right. That's right.
0: When you were working on Space Marine, a lot of what we know now of Horace Heresy solidified into. What it is, um, as far as how many chapters there were, what their names were, although some of the colors changed. I'm thinking of what is it, world leaders were black, and I, I can't remember. Yeah, at all.
1: Dark Angels famously were black at the time. Right. And they didn't change to dark green until later, which I don't think we ever actually explained. Uh, or maybe they have no. these days. They probably have. they probably
0: have. I want to talk to you about that in a second, not the Dark Angels, but not explaining things. Um, For you, what is it like? Again, you worked on Space Marine. You were part of the team that kind of developed the Horus Heresy into what it became. Now, I mean, again, new edition. Everyone's talking about Horus Heresy again. What's that like for you?
1: It's kind of hilarious because, I mean, I'm sure you've heard the story by now about why they picked up on Horus Heresy for promoting Adeptus Titanicus. It was originally, and then it kind of spilled into Space Marine. It was because they could only afford to make one Titan. That's right. <laughs> so, a civil war with different color titans on both sides, but with fundamentally the same kit, mm-hmm. made perfect sense at that point. And as I say, Realm uh, realm of Chaos, uh, Slaves of Darkness, I think it is, talks, its talks has got a couple of paragraphs, basically, two or three paragraphs about the Horus heresy. Uh, and there's another quote somewhere, I think, possibly in Rogue Trader or two, that kind of like references it. Because uh, Rick, bless him. Um, is an archaeologist by education and so he's got a great appreciation of history uh, mm-hmm. particularly things like roman and greek history so he knows that there will there, be things in like historical works that reference prior instances and because of the nature of archaeology is very fragmented we we don't even have a tenth or a hundredth of all the documentation that was provided in the ancient world so you get things like the historian sort of like, a, of course, you you must reference my my history of the ancient world, volume three, to see about the the primordial heresy or what have you. Um, and then it's never, it's disappeared somewhere. You know, some medieval mm-hmm. monk wrote over it a long time ago. So we don't have that now. So that those dangling references were something mm-hmm. he always loved and was great at encompassing. And the great thing about having those dangling references Open doors, we used to call them, is that you can then come back to them later and expand on, you know, what was the Macarian Crusade or what have you Mm -hmm. that you just put in a throwaway line. Who are the Catan? Throwaway lines somewhere else, Uh, and that was one of the great ways that we always had kind of expandability because Forty K was rife with them. It didn't Mm -hmm. attempt to be a comprehensive or complete history of everything that had ever happened because, again, Rick had got this archaeological perspective on it, like we don't know. We don't know what happened 10,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. We have some ideas. We certainly know what some people said happened 10,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. But we don't know. So the, there was always... The Horus Heresy was the fattest of these, really, because it got seized on earlier on for Adeptus to Titanicus and then Space Marine for much the same reasons. Oh, hey, we can produce plastic Space Marines. Yeah. Let's have them in two colours.
0: Green and blue! Hey!
1: But it it... it it seemed like a great natural point to say why is the Imperium the way it is today? Ah, mm. uh, the Emperor was, you know, almost killed and locked into the Golden Throne at that time. I'm not even sure it's mentioned why the Emperor is in the Golden Throne in Rogue Trader, but we kind of I think it was Bill King, I think, mm. hit on that kind of like logical sequence of events, um, as once he started dealing with the Horus Heresy. Like you know, because that would be the culmination, the the high point of the narrative. This clash between two titans, la la la. Um, so it, it got this great kind of like operatic uh, and almost historical bent put onto it from that respect. So yeah, and it stayed around to this day. Uh, mm-hmm. Probably one of the largest pieces of singular lore that exists in the 40k universe, which I find a bit of a shame in some ways, ironically. Because it kind of dr- tends to drown out the current mm. 40K universe. And it is no longer a historical event, as it were. It's, it's been promoted into its yeah. own thing. But there you go. Commercialism for you.
0: It's like, what, 20, 25, 30 novels now? I, I don't know. Oh, it's
1: more than that. It was 40 when I, I last talked to Graham about it. Um, so, And they've been publishing novels since then. So I, I think it's more than 40 books for oh, Horace crazy. Heresy from Black Library. At this point, I know it's crazy. I'm really like,
0: I was seriously. actually about <laughs> <doing that. Yeah.
1: laughs> talking about edging and teasing. That's the yeah. biggest edge tease yeah. ever.
0: Uh, well, we're just—I I actually picked it up again recently because the Siege of Terra, and it's mm-hmm. like the story that you know we've been waiting for. Or
1: have we finally Erwin got there was... yet? How many books yeah. is this going to be?
0: Exactly. Well, getting back to literally the game that you were working on in the '80s, <laughs> the Siege of Terra. Uh, Mm -hmm. but I want to get back to what you were talking about a second ago with open doorways, with what Mm -hmm. Rick was talking about, because I've heard you mention this in another place. And I honestly can't remember where I heard it. So I can't say, I can't give the, the credit to the, the podcast that you were mentioning it on. And I'm sorry about that, (laughs) but you were talking about, and I, I would like you to discuss this because I thought it was fascinating at the time how open doorways are good for imagination and good for games. We're not supposed to, I mean, in a, in a game that has such an expansive, immense, never ending universe, like Warhammer 40,000, we shouldn't know everything. And the fact that we do know now more, uh, and you can get people saying, mm, it kind of takes away from the game. Um,
1: well, what's your question?
0: do you do you still feel that way I guess um could you elaborate on that because i I loved those open doorways as as a kid and I yeah. love for example that having recently reopened some Horace heresy books and gone back through one of the first things I did was take a look do we know who the missing two space marine chapters are
1: no no you never will um, no exactly
0: well. I was hoping we wouldn't, because I didn't want yeah, to Yeah, exactly, I because love that would that be a source of expect-
1: disappointment for you at this point. If it was actually revealed, it would feel cheap. Yeah, what can I say? There is, There is several levels of narrative design, okay? Mm. Starting with almost the individual character. Who is this guy? What does he do? Expanding up to, you know, a group or a gang or a nation or a faction or an army or whatever. Who are they? What do they do? most of those those circumstances you don't want too many mysteries it gets annoying you know who is this guy don't try and be mysterious about just tell me you know you can build the mystery a little bit but you need to follow through at some point same applies to groups and factions and so on to a large extent as well the bigger you get though the less as you say you're willing to accept that you possibly know everything by the time you get up to an entire galaxy and an entire slice of ten thousand years and more of history—you've already got some willingness to to appreciate the fact that you you can't know everything about the universe. Um, nobody would expect you to know everything about the universe, and really, all we were doing was leaning into that uh, as like it is—it is huge. Yes, it's absolutely huge. It is unknowable. A lot of times, people make the mistake of of trying to explain their universe, you know, from the ground up. Uh, You see it in things like Star Wars franchise stuff all the time where everything has got to fit into the mosaic they've got and build onto it. But the problem they have is because they've been doing it one piece at a time, that mosaic is tiny and feels tiny all the time. Mm -hmm. Everything happens on Tatooine. Why? Because it's the only recognizable planet we have really. The other ones we've used them once or twice and they they don't have enough character. So they, they kind of have to loop back to those core facts all the time uh, and can never get very far beyond them because they're always having to go back to them. 40k was, was very much painted as a different canvas to be a canvas, to be a vast canvas with points of detail on it and a massive amount of darkness in between with the invitation, the implicit invitation there to feed, put your own narrative onto that, to imagine, to play around in that space, all those spaces. And that's one of the reasons it's, it's, still around today, it's still popular today, and it, people cite it for its depth, it hasn't got depth, that's a complete lie, you think it's got depth, you imagine it to be have depth, you like the idea that it has depth, uh, and what we've actually done is, is, you can see it done with artwork sometimes, where people just paint something just by the highlights, just by the mm-hmm. points of light, but it's still fundamentally dark, it's that kind of thing, and Consciously, uh, I think it started unconsciously because that's the way the brain, Rick's brain works. But we all picked up on it, and we all built onto that. Mm-hmm. And you know, ten thousand times ten thousand years is a long time. Was it? I think we were fond of saying to each other mm. in regards to like any number of different stories can exist and have been forgotten about by this time, and or only just come to light, and all that kind of stuff. So there's there's no contiguous timeline to follow or you must right. da, 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 and so on so it's a great creative space uh, to a lot of extent I suspect it's less great now for those poor guys having to do all the Horus Heresy books and things like that it's a lot more constrained yeah. but certainly where back, back in my day um, it was a very open um, arena to play around with and play around with ideas uh, which was what I, what I always thought was the greatest thing about it. Is we, we can show you different Space Marine chapters we can show you some ideas of different worlds and trains, but we're not trying to say these are it. Right. There are many, many others out there and it's that invitation to be creative and make some of it, part of it your own, which I think is why 40K has maintained its popularity.
0: There's a, there's a quote in rogue trader about there being a thousand points of light in the darkness. And when you mm-hmm. focus your eyes on one, by the time you do, it's already gone and another light has popped up and that was always sort of the the metaphor for 40K for me. I don't need a special character. I don't need a named character because they 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 lived in a time and a space, and that may not be the time and space that I'm playing in the 40K universe. Yes. Um, and I just enjoyed making my own stories. Um, and I thought that was one of the glorious things about the game and the universe was it was so expansive. Yes. Yes. Well... Andy, let's, let's shift gears slightly because you worked, obviously, through Warhammer. Um, we've talked Epic Scale. We've talked ti- uh, Titanicus, Warhammer 40,000, Necromunda. These games all are on tabletops that resemble, how should I say, um, something that we could recognize if we looked out the window. Then you worked on another game, Battlefleet Gothic, completely different scale. We're talking about a a naval game in space. Now, I've talked to you a little bit about aerial combat games with Blood Red Skies on the Warlord cast. Please do listen, folks, if uh, you're interested. But Battlefleet Gothic was a massive change, and I was basically handed the box when I walked into Games Workshop because I was about to start selling it, and I had no idea what it was. And it it blew my mind um, to try and pick up that game shifting to centimeters just the scale of it a naval game i it took me a little while to get my head around it but god i loved playing that game and we had a staff league and we played quite a lot of it can you talk to us about its development because it was a big jump from other games uh, of its time now it was what space fleet was the white door version slash the little box that had been out yes. previously yes but battle which i owned but battlefield gothic was a completely different game yeah. and a, a much better oh, game.
1: Nothing at all, Um Yeah, yeah I, it, I get it's like Necromander, actually. It goes back in time. When you mm-hmm. when you work in a studio, you'll find this happens, folks. For those of you that do end up working in studios, stuff never dies. It comes back around again. Partially because people were like, I didn't want that to die. I want it to come back around again, and they do. What happened was, when I started out in 1990, um, Richard Halliwell Was still there. He'd written Space Hulk previously, been very successful for Games Workshop, and he'd been asked to do a spaceship game called Battlefleet Gothic. Uh, And because I was the young sprog around, he dragged me and playtested it with me a few times. It was not good. It didn't really play very well. Um, That eventually just sort of like just fell flat. They didn't bother following through with it. Mm. I'd always really liked the ideas behind it and the imagery behind it because, again, Jez Goodwin, that name again. Mm -hmm. I'd done a bunch of concept sketches for Imperial ships and stuff like that and Eldar ships that were gorgeous and I really loved. I loved, still love, spaceships in general. Always have done since I was a nipper. They're the real thing that makes my heart pound Mm -hmm. more than anything else i have got into Adeptus Titanicus in part because it was a bit spaceship-like in some ways, mm. in that you were controlling individual powerful entities that could take some damage and dish it out. And I loved the idea of Battlefleet Gothic. I, I didn't like the the, the the reality of it in terms of a game that Hal had been working on. Um, eventually, the stuff that had been done for that, and there was some art done, and there was even some plastic miniatures done for it, potentially, and some metals, plus... Um, Citadel had acquired over the years various other manufacturers and their molds, and there were were some spaceships in those ranges as well. Hmm. So there there, there was everything that was required to go except a game. Eventually, Jervis wrote a game for it called Space Fleet, uh, Mm -hmm. which was a nice little game in itself. Did a box set for it, including those Mm -hmm. plastics that I mentioned. Uh, Did some extra stuff through White Dwarf. I did some extra stuff for it through White Dwarf Mm -hmm. as well. I didn't particularly like it as a game, um, myself because it was played on a grid, which er- right. Hal's original game was on a grid as well. So I, I think to a certain extent it was Jervs taking the ideas that Hal had gotten, reworking them to something more practical. But it wasn't; uh, it was too much of a board game for my tastes. Yeah. I was very much a you know tabletop miniatures guy. So I started thinking about how to do a, a tabletop game at I don't know, ninety six, ninety seven, somewhere around there, maybe a bit earlier. No, it must have been a bit earlier than that thinking about it i used to do all kinds of cut and shut slam together mock-up models I did some mock-up models of the ships um including one that's basically built around a stick of wood um, to make it big enough so it was like this big nice and i played i started playing around with some systems just in my own time at home um uh, the original original system made for it weirdly was card based and but that didn't get very far and what I eventually did is uh, took the Epic 40,000 rules that we'd just done. I said, well, all right, what if I did a spaceship game kind of based on those? And, and that was my start point. So it's actually based off Epic 40,000 more than anything else, in mechanically. Uh, but I sawed various bits off it and hammered other bits until they fit, basically, and, and came up with what turned out to be a fairly playable little game. Yeah, and touted it through White Dwarf at one point, just put some rules up for it for people who fancied playing a tabletop game, got a good response for that, tweaked it in response to that. And as Rick's told me, as let me know these days, we were coming to the end of that two box games a year, period. Mm-hmm. Tom Kirby had felt that we'd, we'd made enough of a mark by that point. So it was either going to be the last or close to the last. And he knew, because I've been touting it around at, at, at Workshop, that um, I had Battlefleet Gothic as a game, sort of like, or a set of rules at least, ready to go. So he greenlit it, and I got to do that, which was the first time for me I actually got to do a game kind of like off my own back, rather than, oh, hey, Andy, you know, make this edition of 40K work, or what hmm. have you. Uh, I got to kind of like originate it and follow it all the way through, uh, which was really, really great. and. We had a lot of fun doing it. Gav worked very closely with me on it, and I got germs to help out as well. And we had Rare old time, and again, haha, like second edition of 40k, people are still playing it. It's actually yes. been enjoying a real resurgence recently because of 3D printing because people can make the mm-hmm. ships for it, and there are a hell of a lot of 3D STLs, apparently, for it out there. So I, I keep seeing stuff in my feed for Battlefleet Gothic, and people have been writing new fleet lists, and cleaning up the old rules and all that sort of stuff so maintain its popularity um, which looking back um, there are some things I would do differently always as a designer there always is but mm-hmm. it definitely gets more right than it does wrong uh, yeah. as a game so um, yeah that was a big win for me well, probably one of the proudest of my game's designs I think Was uh, yep. gothic. the whole package was just wonderful the art Wayne England is some lovely art for it as well
0: Now I would say that that was coming towards the end of your time at workshop but it wasn't you had a lot, you had many more years there because that was what, 99?
1: And I think then... so yeah I think it came out in 98 or 99 something like yeah. that Um. so yeah it, it it was I think the thing that you're feeling is that changeover that I just mentioned is yeah. because after that workshop went on to the just one big box game a year. Uh, it wouldn't be too long after that they picked up the Lord of the Rings license, so that would become part mm-hmm. of the rotation of three, at which point, obviously, everything everything Warhammer-related, and to a certain extent, 40K-related stuff got suppressed a bit because there's only so many hours in the day, there's only so many pairs of hands to work on things, mm-hmm. so a lot got drawn into Lord of the Rings. So there was a kind of a shift after doing battlefleet gothic so it was a high point for me we did do uh if i remember rightly we did the armageddon campaign and the eye of terror campaign after that you did
0: and that was the first time we met was uh games workshop headquarters and you gave me 60 seconds with in heaven with uh the eye of terror campaign book and answered a few of my dumb questions thank you very much for that for years it was one of those things for years i got to say I got to meet Andy Chambers.
1: And, uh, <laughs> Thanks. Don't be too proud. It's not that much of a rarity. I, I just want to go back, actually, um, and mention one thing about both Space Marine and Battlefleet Gothic and their, their role in the whole enchilada that is 40K. What both of those managed to represent was an opportunity to take a step back and look at the metaverse, as it were, mm. in more detail than you otherwise would have got if it was purely a 28 mil tabletop game true and very much found this when i was uh, working on second and third edition 40ks i i already had this massive grounding in the rest of the universe and the other races in particular because i've been working on the space marine supplements so i did Orc and Squat warlords and I did renegades and all this sort of stuff so which meant that basically you had to do not only say eldar or what have you but also what their war machines were and what their artillery looked like and mm-hmm. have an idea of how they worked strategically on the battlefield and tactically and all this working out. That kind of doesn't really bear on a tabletop skirmish game. Right. Um, but it does bear on a larger field. And the same with spaceships as well. Once you start to um, you know apply that kind of logic into how spaceships work. And it, and it was this idea that, that the whole of the universe started to lock together a little bit more in terms of how everything worked it, it meant that it developed in ways that it didn't have to mm-hmm. and again the, the, this is the the trip up you get with things like movie IPs and to a certain extent PC game IPs as well, sorry digital game IPs, they tend to focus only on, only on what they need yeah? we right. need to know about this character we need to know about the street he lives on, the town he lives in maybe you don't need to know about the country. You certainly don't need to know about the world. So you don't get to hear about the world because that's not the eyes you're looking through. You know? mm-hmm. But for a gamer, a collector, who wants to revel in that universe, the, the fact that the other aspects of it are covered. And Necromunda did this to a certain extent. Of, like, how do hive cities work? What are they like? You know, Every role-playing game has to do this to a certain extent, of like depicting the world in a more general sense. Mm-hmm. Battlefleet Gothic and Space Marine Forced us to look outside of the perspective of the immediate tabletop games in terms of the background and the art, and they had a huge impact because of that. That was kind of disproportionate, and I often feel like, basically, commercially. Once again, we come back to the commercial side of things. Things like small scales, things like spaceships, eh, it's not as profitable as twenty-eight mil, well, thirty-two mil as they are now miniatures, hmm. but there is a value to them as well in that they they force your universe to grow. So. It was kind of unconscious and lucky for Games Workshop, but that's the way it worked out. I can see that now. Um and Battlefleet Gothic is just a prime example of that. That's the bit that makes all the other bits work together because now you know how you get from world to world and whether there can be a fight in between. Mm-hmm. So good and times.
0: Th- and how many times have we seen that in black library books since then? Mm. It's every book. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I suppose they were it was mentioned previous to that, but the the intricacies of the combat and how everything worked wasn't there until Battlefleet Gothic, Not properly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. And as you were talking about earlier with open doors, that just opens up the universe far greater. Andy, I think that takes us full circle. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for coming on. It has been a wonderful uh, trip down memory lane, and uh, it's just been great to reminisce about some of my favorite games and favorite years of gaming. It's it's just been a pleasure, as always, to have you on. Thank you.
1: Uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk. People are always so like, oh, thank you for coming on. It's like, I'm just an old fart that still designs game in my, you know in my dotage. So it gives me a chance to get out of there into the world, tell my stories. I remember when. And this was where we all had to wear an onion on our belts, etc. So, thank you for the opportunity. Always a great pleasure talking to you, Brad.
0: Well, speaking of things that you're working on these days and the onion on your belt at the moment, let's talk. Uh, Slain has just come out. Judge uh-huh. Dread, of course, is in the rotation. It is still available through Warlord Games. Uh, Strontium Dog, you can find around the joint. Um, those are all part of the 2000 AD universe games through yep. Warlord Games. Judge Dread, hell of a lot of fun. Highly recommend. And uh, a more stuff of mine, coming for Dread own.
1: as well, uh, as oh. I wanted to understand it. I'm sure that Paul won't murder me so much for too much for saying it. I'm pretty sure he said something about it at the Warlord Open Day. So, more stuff coming for Judge Dread. Um, he did also, because <laughs> I would be really careful not to say it, myself and Gaff have already written an ABC Warriors game as well, yes. using the same rule set, same universe, so that it can interplay with the others. Uh, Because of COVID and stuff, we're kind of lagging behind on the releases, so you're just getting slain now, even though we wrote slain like two years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, But ABC Warriors is there on the blocks, waiting to go for uh, once slain's moved along, and then the Just Dread extras have moved along, and then ABC Warriors, and then after that, we get to look at perhaps doing another one, which will be great, because I really enjoy doing 2080 games. Mm. It's like a pure... Rogue Trooper? Rogue Trooper? Rogue Trooper, possibly. It, it certainly has been discussed as a, a likely candidate for the next one. Uh, big fan, big fan. Um, um, me too, but unfortunately, my initial proposal like doing it in 15 mil, um, it's a mass combat game. Not going to fly because of what I was just saying about, commercially speaking, uh, that's suicide. Mm-hmm.
0: So... Uh,
1: <laughs> yes,
0: no, no. Well, let's also talk about Blood Red Skies because uh you do love your fighters and uh that is going strong. We're on to a second box set as far as the midway box set, and there's a lot of I mean the ops deck just came out for that, uh, as well as a whole lot of resin fighters, and there's more to come. So hmm. You guys, I mean, you you have games that are currently out and about and on tabletops all over the place. Uh, Still in it. I love it.
1: Yes. Yeah, I I worked it out at one point. I think it's still true. I average uh, one kind of box game every two years throughout my entire 32-year career. So it's not quite thousands, but if it feels like there's a lot of them, that's why. Well, Because there's a lot of them.
0: I was just writing them down earlier, or I actually sat down and looked it up online. And I was, that is a lot of games. And then I looked it up and I hadn't even hit half the list. And it was, <laughs> it was embarrassing. That's brilliant. I mean, including addition changes and things like that. You have been in a lot of places and had your fingers in a lot of pies. And um, I'm, I'm thankful that you did because uh, I, I okay. have enjoyed many of the things that you've done.
1: Thank you very well, much. Though. I just want to finally say a, a big shout out to everyone out there with imposter syndrome. You can talk about my achievements like that, but no, I still feel like I'm lazy and useless. So uh, <laughs> must strive, must do more. Prove myself. It's like, really? You don't feel you w- yourself. proving no. yourself. I'm going to
0: rewind 30 seconds where you said mm. in 32 years, you've done uh, a, on average, a box mm. game every mm. two years, 16 yes. games. Yes, that's that is not lazy in anyone's. uh,
1: (laughs) I know you can you can tell me that, do the maths and so forth, and you know I can look at them and go like, okay, that that seems like a lot. It's I think it's a classic one that it doesn't feel like work to me. It does sometimes, but in general, I love what I do. I'm blessed in that regard, so I just count myself lucky. Anyway, I'm rattling on unnecessarily long. I'll let you go now.
0: Okay. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for listening to this episode. As I said earlier, I have had tons of feedback of folks wanting me. It seems about once a year I go back and take a look down memory lane at some of the the games that I loved uh, and talking to some of the folks who made them. Uh, And we've been very lucky to have Rick and now Andy on. And thank you for all the requests. These are personally... Uh, some of my favorite episodes of Cast Ice stew because they just they take me back to happy days and um, just just wonderful moments on the tabletop. Guys, again, that wouldn't happen without all the requests. Thank you so much for everyone who's checked out the new format. Um, we are. This episode is also airing on YouTube. You can see Andy's pretty face and you can see my face, which is great for radio. And you can see uh, pictures of different things as I start to play around with the formatting of the show. Um, If you have any requests going forward, uh, sneers, jeers, abuses, or anything else you'd like to share, heck, you have something nice to say. Please go to Cast Dice C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E, on Facebook. You're guaranteed a response. Uh, My name is Brad. Hi. You will definitely hear back from me. Just remember, I do occasionally sleep, and I do live in Australia, so it might take a few hours. Other than that, though, when I start talking about my sleeping habits, it's definitely time to go with what my buddy Casey always says, which is, when you are playing the games that we know and love, I hope that your dice roll hot. I hope your beverages are cold. But more than that, we at Cast Dice hope that you are having fun. Stay safe out there, guys. Good night.